Well, good evening. Welcome to the worship of our great God here at Redeemer OPC. We got a couple announcements to get us started. First, Pastor Jonathan is preaching over at, at Cedar OPC this evening. Uh, so uh, we're thankful that we can have so many churches, um, sister churches nearby that we can uh, help supply. And uh, Pastor Steve is on sabbatical, I think, for a little bit longer. I think Pastor Jonathan is actually helping at this this very back part. Uh, but he mentioned to me that he plans to be here tonight. But of course, as the normal rules, because he was not here for worship, he's at the very end of the line. So be sure to just remind him to, sit, to move on back. Uh, and no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're really thankful for that opportunity. Uh, we also have another uh, great opportunity. This morning, we celebrated the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And tonight we get to see the baptism of Sadie Grace uh, Sturk. And so we're, we're really grateful that we, we can uh, celebrate that as a church family. And then as I mentioned, the Labor Day picnic is this evening. If you're visiting with us tonight, uh, we're glad that you're here and we hope uh, that you can join us. Uh, don't feel like you, you need to, to run back to the store and grab anything. We'd love to have you here. Uh, if you want to connect with us, the number on the screen is a great way to do that. Just text WELCOME to that number, and that lets us know that you uh, visited and gives us the opportunity to pray for you. Uh, finally, next week, uh, next Sunday is the, the big Sunday when things start back here at Redeemer. Uh, Sunday school in particular uh, wanted to highlight the Inquirer's class. If you are considering membership here at Redeemer... Or if you are just interested in learning a little bit more about the church, uh, this is a great opportunity. Pastor Jeff will be uh, teaching that class during the Sunday school uh, time. Uh, but we will also be having an adult Sunday school class in here. Uh, and that's a, that'll be a parenting class uh, taught by uh, Dave Langerak and myself. And then finally, uh, Youth Sunday School, which you can see um, in the insert, uh, there's a... a a website for you to uh, uh, register your child if you have yet to do that. Uh, please do that. That lets the teachers uh, know and plan uh, accordingly. Uh, so those are all my announcements. Let's take a moment now and prepare to worship our God. The scriptures consistently portray God as a king, uh, a mighty king who rules sovereignly over all of creation, but especially over his people. And we are reminded again and again that he is a good king. Uh, he is not like uh, the kings who so often fail and fail in our world even today. But our God is faithful and good and kind to his people. And our psalm that leads us into our time of worship reminds us of that. 
We read in Psalm 34, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Let's stand and sing to him with God and King. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on us now. 
Oh Lord, we do confess that you are the mighty God, that you are the righteous King. And Lord, as we have confessed with our mouths, Lord, we pray that you would, you would so work it in our hearts that we would offer ourselves to you. For you are deserving of everything that we are, our entire lives, Lord. Our words and our thoughts and our actions, Lord. That they would be in submission to your rule and your way. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to see. Help us to see those parts of our lives that are not in conformity to that, Lord. But that we would delight that we would delight in bowing down before King Jesus and knowing that, that it's by His grace that we can follow You. Lord, help us to see Your goodness and Your kindness that You've shown us in Him. Lord, we pray these things in His name. Amen. Let's continue to praise with, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
Please be seated. We have the privilege this evening of praying for Words of Hope, a Redeemer-supported, global-reaching, gospel-spreading ministry. Its mission, providing daily access to God's Word globally in multiple native languages and dialects. Words of Hope uses donations and resources to provide guided access through the Scripture, including daily devotions in multiple languages. Words of Hope is a Grand Rapids-based ministry starting here in 1945 as a radio ministry. Uh, its core goal, utilizing new media formats as they become available, but to meet and reach the needs of our global uh, community. Traditional print formats supplemented with emails and social medias and a mobile app provide daily devotional reading and recorded content. Words of Hope partners with a global network of more than 100 indigenous pastors and media outreach specialists. So join me as we pray this evening uh, for the special needs of Words of Hope outlined in their September prayer guide that's available on their website. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks, praise, and prayers for Words of Hope, U.S. and its global ministries and the people in the ministries that they serve. In Nigeria, following a military coup, ousting a democratically elected government, Lord, we urgently and earnestly pray your will be felt in selecting new leadership in that country, peace and assurance in the power transition, economic stability and safety for all civilians, for churches as places of faith, refuge, stability, and assurance, and the preservation of religious freedoms in that country. In Bhutan, praises for translating daily devotional material into Bhutanese, sharing the gospel in their own language and their own cultural context. In India, Lord, we have prayers for Words of Hope's leaders and the audiences they serve facing life-threatening religious and cultural hostilities. In Indonesia, Lord, prayers for your comfort, your presence, your provision for Christians facing opposition, domestic abuse, illness, and a lack of money and resources. In Iran, Lord, we pray prayers for thanks and a new series of short one-minute videos produced for Iranian children, Lord. May it touch their hearts and touch their parents' hearts. In Nepal, praises that Words of Hope and is now translating daily devotional material into Nepali. In South Sudan, prayers for the refugees in urgent need of humanitarian assistance, fleeing civil war in Sudan. In Turkey, prayers for your guidance and uplifting Words of Hope's ministry that more people become engaged through social media and radio in that country. And here in the U.S., Lord, prayers and praises in words of hope reaching prisoners in daily life-changing gospel messages. We pray for words of hope's leadership in spreading the gospel. We give thanks for their dedication 
and for their persistence in your great command in spreading it throughout the globe. We pray each of these things, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. And please join us now for a very special baptism. It is such a joy to celebrate the sacraments because they affirm to us what we hear in the Word of God. And I was talking with someone not that long ago, and this person said to me, when you talk about baptism on Sunday morning or Sunday evening, it makes a lot of sense to me, and then I go home and I think, now wait a minute, why did we baptize that child? And so tonight, before we ask the Sturks to come forward, I want to give an explanation. And this is a little different explanation than what I've given before. I've been mulling it over and summarized a few things, and I'm hoping this will be helpful for you, whether you're here and you're not ordinarily in church, or if you've been in church for a long time, but it's not in a church that practices infant baptism, or if you have been a member of a church that practices infant baptism for a long time, and you're wondering, I still don't know exactly why we do that. I hope this will be helpful for you. It is our privilege tonight to administer, that is, to place the water of baptism upon the head of our, one of our little infants, little Sadie Grace. I want to say we do not believe there's anything magical about the water that we apply to the child. The water's ordinary water. It came from the tap in the kitchen. There's nothing extraordinary about the water. The water does not wash away the sins of this child or save this little girl. We do not presume that this child will go to heaven simply because she is baptized, nor do we presume for her to be saved simply because she receives this sign. To put it simply, we're not baptizing her out of superstition or tradition, or my favorite, just because we like cute little children. We baptize infants because they are, and here's the key phrase, covenant children and should receive the sign of the covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, God made a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham is known in the scriptures as the father of the faithful, that is, of all those who eventually would trust in Christ. And this covenant that God made with Abraham was sealed with a sign of circumcision according to Genesis 17. And at the heart of the covenant was God's promise that he would be a God forever to Abraham and to his children. Now, the assigned circumcision was not just a physical thing. This is very important. It wasn't just a physical thing meant to mark ethnic Jews from everyone else. Circumcision, according to the Old Testament, was full of spiritual meaning. The circumcision of the flesh was always meant to correspond with a cleansing of the heart. It pointed to humility, to a new birth, to a new way of life, according to various Old Testament passages. In fact, Paul says in Romans 4, verse 11, that Abraham, he says, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had faith while he was yet uncircumcised. That is, he had a circumcised heart while his body was uncircumcised. God's own interpretation of circumcision in the Old Testament is that it was much more than just a physical sign for the nation of Israel. There were some in Paul's day who were circumcised, but not really circumcised on the heart. And that is also true in our day today. It's possible to be baptized with water, as little Sadie Grace will be baptized. It doesn't mean everyone who receives that sign 
is circumcised or baptized in their heart. But children should still be marked as belonging to a covenant, that is, to this promissory relationship that God has with his people. But if they do not exercise faith, they will not grab hold of the fullness of the covenant blessings. If you fast forward to the New Testament, children today are baptized because of the same covenant that God established with Abraham in the Old Testament. Paul makes that clear in Galatians 3. What Peter suggests in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost Paul in Galatians 3 says that the Abrahamic covenant has not been annulled. He says what God did in the Old Testament to Abraham and to his people still holds. And it is for that reason we believe children should not be excluded in the New Testament sign of baptism. I would say to you, you can look the Bible over and there's no text in the New Testament that says, Hear ye, hear ye, all of you, baptism has replaced circumcision. That doesn't exist in the New Testament. But we do know from Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, that baptism and circumcision, understand this, carry exactly the same spiritual meaning. And in the history of the church, there was a transition from one sign, that is circumcision, to a new sign that was baptism. The Jews, early in the New Testament period, practiced proselyte, that is conversion baptisms. We read about that, for example, in Uh, John the Baptist, he was baptizing those who came in to the church saying, you are marked now as belonging to the covenant people. And that sign of baptism came to be seen as the mark now of being included in the covenant people as a whole. For a while, circumcision existed along with baptism. But as the early church became more and more Gentile and less and less Jewish, many of the Jewish rites were rendered unnecessary and sometimes even detrimental to the faith. Thus, baptism eclipsed circumcision as the sign of renewal, rebirth, and covenant membership. If you think, I'm not sure, still, of whether you are giving a cogent argument, there's four things I want you to think about that might help you understand uh, understand baptism as a sign of the covenant today. First, I would suggest to you that if children were not to be included in the covenant today, there would have been a major outcry early in the New Testament period. For children to be included in the covenant for generation after generation after generation in the Old Testament, and then suddenly not to be included in the covenant in the New Testament, you would see signs that the church would be upset about that change, or at least there would be serious debate. But there is no such debate. In fact, we find not a sense of angst over baptism, we find a sense of joy in the New Testament about baptism as a covenant sign. Second, the existence of household baptisms that we read about in Acts and 1 Corinthians are signs that God still deals with family units and welcomes whole families into the church to come, come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Just as God did in the Old Testament with Abraham, so he continues to do today. The sign may be different, but the same principle holds. The third thing I want you to consider is that children in the Scriptures, think about Ephesians 6 verse 1, for example, are told to obey their, children, uh, obey their parents in the Lord. 
That is, children in the church are not treated as little pagans to be evangelized, but as members of the covenant who, are, who owe their allegiance to Christ. They're, they are called to claim the promises and to be faithful to the covenant sign that is given to them. And finally and fourth, within the first two centuries of the apostles, early in the New Testament, we have very clear sign that the church was practicing infant baptism. If this had been a change to a long-standing tradition, again, we would have some record of the church arguing over this new practice. There is no argument. It's simply accepted. It wasn't until the 16th century that Christians began to question the legitimacy of infant baptism. And so tonight, to make this very personal for the Sturks, we come to administer the sacrament of baptism to little Sadie Grace with the weight of church history to encourage us and the teaching of redemptive history to root our practice. We baptize her tonight in obedience to Christ's command. The sacrament we are about to administer is a sign of inclusion of this little girl way before she has any idea what this means. It shows her inclusion in a covenant community just as certainly as circumcision did in the Old Testament. And the water we're about to sprinkle on her is a sign of cleansing from sin as the sprinkled blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament was for the forgiveness of sins in that day. And we pray, along with her parents and her extended family, that Sadie Grace will take advantage of all of these covenant promises, that she will acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord of her life for every single day that she lives. And by faith, she will make these promises her very own. If the Sturks could come up, please, I have questions to ask them. All right, so I have four questions to ask you before the water is placed on Sadie's head. And these are questions we talked about earlier, and these are questions that acknowledge your understanding of what baptism is, but more importantly, your promise to raise your daughter along with your sons to know Jesus. So I'll read the question. If you agree, say, we do. Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, they are set aside as holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as children of the covenant are to be baptized. We do. Second, do you promise to teach diligently to Sadie the principles of our holy Christian faith as revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and as summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of this church? We do. Third, do you promise to pray regularly with and for Sadie and to set an example of piety and godliness before her. We do. And finally, do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Sadie up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to encourage her to appropriate for herself the blessings and to fulfill the obligations of the covenant? What do you say? We do. Praise the Lord. And I have to say you're good parents. <laughs> Can I hold her? 
You want to watch? Yeah, you can watch. Okay. Sadie Grace Sturk, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's also a promise that the congregation is asked to make, and so if you are a member of our congregation, I'm going to read the following and then ask you to affirm by saying, we do. As Sadie is baptized into Christ and becomes a member of his visible church, the whole congregation is obligated to love her and receive her as a member of the body of Christ. The Bible says we are all baptized by one spirit into one body and therefore are members of one another. Christ claims this little girl as his own and calls you to receive her in love and commitment. Therefore, you ought to commit yourself before God to assist the Sturks in her Christian nurture by godly example, prayer, and encouragement in our most precious faith. If you agree to do so, please say, we do. And I have a baptismal certificate for you. You can take that, and then you can maybe mercifully go back to your seat. You're welcome. I have to say, I remember when my children were young, it was not as fun as this is. <laughs> I want to pray for them. Would you join me in praying for the Sturks? Father, we are so glad that you have blessed this family and our church with children, whether they are newborn or a couple years old or they continue on into adulthood. Lord, we're thankful for each one of them because you did say to Abraham that the promise to be God to him was also extended to his children. And we look at the children in each one of our families and we say, Lord, as much as we try to raise them to know you, to pray for them, to teach them what the Bible says. It is only your work. It takes the work of God himself to change their hearts from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from a heart that is uncircumcised to a heart that is circumcised, from a heart that is unclean to a heart that is cleansed. And we pray for the Sturks tonight. Lord, give them great diligence. Give them encouragement as they seek to raise their boys and now their little girl to know Jesus Christ. When they are sometimes frustrated or when it's difficult, give them patience. But most of all, we pray that they would have a great faith and dependence upon you as God to do the work that is necessary for their children to love you, to follow you, and to serve you every day of their lives so that one day when they are welcomed into life eternal, their children will go along with them. Father, we rejoice in your promises that you know how hard it is for us to believe that you're at work, and so you give us these signs. We rejoice in the way in which you know our weakness and you accommodate yourself to us. Receive our thanks, we pray. In Jesus' great name, amen. Would you stand and sing with me, please? May the mind of Christ my Savior.
You may be seated. Let's take a few moments and join our hearts together in a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord, as we gather here together tonight, we're just so reminded of the abundant blessings that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, for just the simple fact that we're here, that we're together, uh, that uh, our hearts are beating and we're breathing air in our lungs. Uh, That alone is a miracle every day and a blessing from you. We thank you, Lord, for the miracle of new life that we see and that we just witnessed with the baptism of Sadie. And we just ask that we as a congregation would recognize each and every one of these children as blessings. And as we transition uh, to a new ministry year, we're reminded of how that promise that we made comes to fruition as we look at the various Bible studies, nursery ministries, boys club, girls club, Sunday school, youth group. We just uh, see that it takes a collective effort from all of us to raise these children up to fear and to know the Lord, and we ask that uh, we would do so well. And we thank you for all of the volunteers and all of the prayers and effort that goes into uh, this every, each and every single week, in, day in and day out. Lord, we also thank you for the faithful preaching of the word. We thank you for Pastor Dan. We thank you for Pastor Jonathan. We thank you for Pastor Jeff and the gifts that you've given to each of these men as they lead this congregation. We ask that uh, you would protect them, that you would protect their hearts uh, and their minds as they seek to lead us to be a church that follows scriptural truths and uh, uses those truths to care for one another and to reach others in the community and across the world that may not know you. Lord, we ask that you would also bless the financial gifts of this church. We ask that you would give us generous hearts and gifts that uh, we can use in the furtherance of your kingdom. We just thank you so much for the generosity um, of those that have continued to faithfully give year in and year out. And uh, we just ask that you give the deacons wisdom as they administer these as well. All this we ask in your name. Amen. I only 
In our Sunday evening services, we've been spending time following um, a confession of the basic truths of the Christian faith. Tonight, I'm going to read um, the Shorter Catechism, what we call the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 39, and then we'll be hearing a sermon on Psalm 19. So this is a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches, and tonight's question, question and answer 39, is one of the most basic questions, not only in the confession or the catechism, but also for each one of us in life. And the question is, what is the duty which God requires of man? That is, what is the thing God is looking for from us? And the answer is, the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. What does God want? He wants us to obey him. So Psalm 19, you can follow along. If you have a Bible, otherwise it's on the screen behind me. Hear the word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God. Back when I was much younger in college, some of you have dropped off children at college. Others of you are anticipating college or maybe you're attending college now. I did work study in the theater department. It was my job to build some of the scenes for the various plays that the theater department was hosting. And I don't remember the particular play, but I do remember the professor in charge of the site design came to see my work, and the first time he looked at it, he said, that's not what I'm looking for. You have to do something else. So I tore all that down, and I tried again a second time, and he came in a second time, and he said, you know, that's not the look we're going for either. That's never going to work. Tear it down and try again. So not really understanding what he was looking for, I tore it down and designed another site, built the site. The third time he came and said, that's not what I really anticipated either. I asked him this question, then what are you looking for? That's not just a question you might ask if you have to do the sort of work that I did while in college. It's a question every one of us faces, not simply with a professor who's fickle, but with a question that we might want to ask our Creator. What do you really want from me? What are you looking for from me? 
And Psalm 19 tells us there are two ways that God speaks to us, first in the world around us, and then within what's called the law of God, the scripture, the written book that he has given us. These two ways tell us about who God is. And not only do they tell us who God is, but by the end of this song, this psalm, the writer also tells us what this God who is, what he really wants from us. And tonight, whether you've considered this question for many, many years, what does God want from me? Or tonight is the first time you're really considering that question. I'm going to walk through Psalm 19 with you to answer this very critical question. What does God want from me? And the answer the psalmist gives is God wants us to know him and to obey him. That's what God desires. To know him begins... In the first section of this passage, the whole song develops in three very distinct portions. It's like a song that we might sing. Songs that we have already sung. Here are three different parts of the song. The first part of the song is the first six verses. And there the writer, David, describes the world that God has made and what the world says about its creator. He begins by saying in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He says more about this creation and what it reveals, but the first thing he points out is the thing I want to stress to you, and that is it says something about who God is. When you live in this world, it is unavoidable that you must ask the question, and how did all of this come to pass? There are various explanations. There have been many explanations given during uh, our existence as humankind, but the Bible's answer is very, very clear. This world would not exist apart from a creator. A creation requires a creator, and the creation is the one found, revealed in the Scripture, and the world itself testifies to the greatness of this creator. The psalmist says four distinct things about this creation and what it says about the creator. He says in verse 1, it declares the glory of God, the heavens, the sky, and everything in this world proclaims the glory of God. The second thing the psalmist says about this creation is that there is a continual testimony about this creator from the creation. The third thing he says in verse 3 is that this testimony of the creation that is given by the whole creation continually also is given clearly. Look at verse 3. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Whether your native language is English, Spanish, French, whatever your native language is, the psalmist says the testimony of creation cuts across all of that. If you live in God's world, the creator's world, you will be able to sense from the world that he has made that there is a creator, even if you cannot understand the language that another human being would speak to you. The testimony to creation is that powerful and that clear. Fourth, he says in verse 4, that their voice goes throughout all the world. There is no place in this world, no matter where you live, that this testimony is not given. This testimony is from the whole creation continually, clearly, and to the very end of our experience in it. Now those are four incredible claims about the testimony of the creation that God has given. And yet later when Paul, in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, describes the way 
we as human beings receive this testimony of creation, he says we suppress the truth of what creation is telling us in unrighteousness. Let me just explain a little bit what that means. You certainly know that there are alternative explanations for how the world came to be. Maybe it's that the world has always been. The world is eternal. Maybe it's that at some point, there was some other way that the world began beside God. Whatever the explanation is as an alternative to what the scriptures explain, according to God himself, is an affront to who God is. I'll just give you a little example of this. When my wife and I were dating, I did something. I'm not sure if I would commend this to you, but I did it. I was madly in love with my wife. I'm not ashamed to say it. I'll even say I still am. And I created for her an oak cabinet that was lined with cedar in the inside. And when we became engaged, I not only gave her a ring... I gave her something that I'd slaved over for hours and hours and hours in order to show her that I wanted to work and apply my skill in order to demonstrate my love for her. That cabinet's still in her house. Now imagine after doing all of that, somebody came along who was not me, and claimed that that cabinet belonged to them and was a sign of their love for my wife. Does that make you a little angry that someone would try to do that? I tell you at that point, and even now it would make me angry. That's my cabinet, my sign of my love for my wife. How dare you claim that as your own? That was made by me. Do not claim it as your own and then say it represents your love for the woman I love. It's not true. i got to stop because I'm going to get angry otherwise. I can feel it. The reason I'm putting it that strenuously is because you're living in a world that was created by God. It's his world. He made it. He designed it to care for the crown of his creation that's human beings. That's you. And if you live in his world and you deny the fact this is God's world crafted and made by him, you're not only denying the reality of the world that he has made, you're denying something very important about God. And that is that God is not who he claims to be. And you're doing on a cosmic scale what brings some anger in my own soul. That is you're giving credit to all that has been made to someone who has no right to claim it as their own. So that the first six verses of Psalm 19 tell us two things. First, who this creator is. And second, how powerful the testimony of this creation is to the creator God. God made all things. And the testimony of those things to who God is is clear and available to every single person. There's a second thing the psalmist says. And this is found in verses 7 through 11. There's almost a sudden switch in this chapter from the creation of what it says about God to verses 7 through 11 where there's this great testimony about what's called the law, where it's called the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, the rules. These are all different ways of describing what we hold in our hands here, if you have one. That is the Scriptures. This is God's direct testimony to who He is. Let me use another example about the time I was dating my wife. 
Some of you know that over the past week or so, there was electricity outages after the storm that came through. And while my daughter and I were hiking through the Rocky Mountains, my wife and family, they were at home without electricity, without air conditioning, and someone who we will not name did not turn on the circuit for the generator that would pump the water out of the basement to the outside. That was me. So while we were hiking in beautiful, majestic mountains, enjoying God's creation, my dear wife came one morning to the terrible discovery that there was water filling up the basement and something had to be done right now. Horrible. Not great. Not good at all. While she came to that discovery, she called my son who came home and helped her reconcile that problem, for which I am very thankful. One of the things that became wet in the flood was a whole series of yellow lined paper letters that you're truly sent to my wife while in college. I heard that. I felt the same thing. In fact, looking through some of those letters really impressed me with what a romantic I was. Now imagine somebody else came along and said, no, those letters came from me. Those were my letters. I wrote them. They're actually a description of my love for your wife, not your love. Again, you can understand how frustrating that would be for me. I agonized over those letters. This was the time you had to look up difficult words in the dictionary. These are my words that are laid out here to someone I love and I care about. In a very similar fashion, the words that are found in the scriptures are meant as God's testimony about himself to us as his creation. These are not someone else's words. These are his words, the creator's words about what it means to live in his world and the law that is the standard that God is holding us to. Now, when you read these words, I hope that you're impressed with the delights that the psalmist takes in these words. They're rooted in God's character. He says they're complete. They provide us a solid foundation. They open our heart. They reveal things about us that nothing else can. They last forever. And perhaps most striking to me is what comes at the end of verse 9, where it says the rules of the Lord are true and righteous. That is, these words that are found in the scriptures are actually true. There's no deceit in them. You can base your life on them. They're reliable. In a world in which there's all kinds of confusion, the scriptures stand as a truth upon which you can base your life. And you notice because of it, the psalmist says, they're more desirable than anything else I have. Just look at verses 10 and 11. More than gold, sweeter than honey. I want these things. I long for them. And by keeping them, your servant, that is David, says, I have great reward. What did the Scriptures tell us about God? The Scriptures tell us that God is great. He is holy. He is just. And that we are called to obey and to follow His Word. 
If the creation tells us that God is great and this world has been made by him, we owe something to our creator. It is dishonest. In fact, it is rebellious of us not to ascribe to the creator the glory due him for everything he has made. Then the word of God tells us, and we owe this creator absolute, unwavering, complete obedience because God is just and holy. What does God require of us? God requires that we know him and obey him completely. Now, most of the time, not every once in a while, not only when others can see us, but every single moment of every one of our lives, we owe this obedience to God. Those are the first two big sections of Psalm 19. And I have to pause and just ask you how you stack up compared to what these two first sections, what we might call general revelation and then special revelation, tell us about our Creator and what God demands of us. God demands that we know Him and obey Him. Do you know Him and do you obey Him? I don't mean just sometimes. I just don't mean when it's easy. I mean, do you know Him and do you obey Him completely? Does it drive your life? Do you wake up in the morning and say in your heart, the Scriptures are worth more to me than anything else in my life. I'm going to dive into them deeply. Do you run around outside and say to yourself and to your children and your neighbor, look at what God has done, it's amazing. God is great, God is powerful, He's good. Is that what you say? Or are you more likely to say, you know what, people think I'm a little strange. If I do that, I'll just keep that to myself. I'll have a lot of joy and a lot of praise of God, just very internal. Do you know and do you obey God? That's the question that Psalm 19 asks. Which brings me to the third part of this song, which is verses 12, 13, and 14 where the psalmist reflects on the two ways in which we know and are called to obey God. And now we ask himself a series of questions. Who can discern my errors? In fact, when he asks that question, it's a kind of question that's not meant as an open-ended question. He says, who can discern my errors? It's obvious. Who knows our errors? Who knows what's in our heart? God does. Immediately comes this conclusion if I'm called to know God and to obey Him in everything that I do. I'm in trouble. Because I don't acknowledge Him in everything I do. I don't obey Him in everything that He's called me to. I'm in deep, deep trouble. And His desire is that God would declare Him innocent from His hidden faults. It is His desire that His presumptuous sins, that is the things that He knows that are wrong, That he does anyway, he persists in them. That they would not have dominion over him. That he would be considered blameless and innocent of great transgression. So here's the question that we arrive at. If what God asks of us is to know him and obey him completely, how do we end up in a position in which we can say with the psalmist, I have been declared innocent from my hidden faults. My sins have no dominion over me. I am blameless and innocent of great transgression. I'll give you an answer that is not going to work. And that is, you're going to try harder. Many of you know that two weeks ago, I was at a running camp. There's a dear friend that someone in our church and I went together to visit. He runs a running camp 
For most of the year, he volunteers his time in public schools in his city, training kids in cross-country and track. It's cost him dearly. You can imagine how much that costs him personally. And then for one week a year, he invites these kids, many of whom do not come from Christian homes, to come to a running camp. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, for a half hour in the morning and a half hour at night, someone talks to them about Jesus. That was my joy to explain to them the uniqueness of Jesus for an hour every day to many kids, middle schoolers and high schoolers who did not know Jesus and some of whom a good number were Islamic. And this might very very well have been the first time they ever heard about how Jesus is. The reason I tell you that story is because in the Islamic faith, Allah is going to look past your faults, your sins, because you've made up for them. There was one young man, I will not name, who I said, how do you plan on doing that if that's how the Islamic faith works? He says, actually, I've come to the conclusion I'll never make up for them. And so I have tried to live so holy from the age of 10 at which we're considered accountable that even though I'm 16 years old, I have never sinned in any way since I have been 10 years old. That was his solution. I'm not sure he was being honest. He was sincere. I'm not sure he was honest. If you consider your own life, friend, you're going to find that's not an honest answer. And furthermore, attempting to make it up with the divine, it's never going to work. You are digging a hole in order to fill in another one. There will always be a hole. There is no escape from the absolute standard of the creator who made the air that you breathe, the dirt you walk on, and who speaks to you in the word of God. There is no relief in simply trying to do more and to do better. In Psalm 19, even though it does not say it specifically, ends with verse 14 where it does say rather overtly that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my my rock and my redeemer. Now that's such an interesting way to end a psalm in which the psalmist has said, we know about you and we're called to obey you from the world and the word, and I know that I am not innocent, that when you look at me, I am judged guilty because of what I have done, and yet I can end this song by saying, You can make me acceptable, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How is that possible? The answer comes later on in the Gospel of John. And if you can imagine me sitting in an old camp, the camp was nothing glorious, (laughs) let me tell you. But it was a place in which for many years, children have heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ, many who'd never heard before. And sitting at an old table across from this young man, again, whose name I will not mention, as we discussed how we can be made right with the creator of the universe, I pointed him to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6 verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father. That is, the one who made all things, the creator of the universe, the one who's spoken in the word of God. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. 
And I will raise him up on the last day. Where is your hope, my friend? If God requires of you that you know him and you obey him in every single part of your life, what is your hope? Where do you go? Where do you run to? Jesus says, this is the will of my father. This is what my father says you ought to do. The creator God says this, look on me, that is Jesus. Believe in me and you will have eternal life. The answer is not to look inward. It's to look upward to Jesus Christ who provides for you in mercy something that you're striving to do and yet will never complete. He will give you peace with the Creator who made all things and who calls you to absolute obedience in the Word of God. If you think of some way around this, you're going to end up in one of two places. One, you're going to be dishonest. You're going to say like this boy I talked to, I don't really have sin. I haven't sinned in six years. His sister was also at the camp, and I wondered what she would say about that. You're either going to end up being dishonest or you will end up in despair. Because if you seriously wrestle with your rebellion against the Creator, you will end up in a place that if you do not have Jesus Christ, there is no hope in the world. What does God require of you? To know Him and to obey Him. And the joy of the gospel is that you can know Him and you can follow Him in Jesus Christ. So that where you have failed, Jesus covers your failure. And where you strive to live after Him, Jesus equips you and makes you capable to live in a way you could have never imagined. Imperfect, perhaps. And yet in a way that is consistent with the will of my Father, that you look on Him, the Son, believe in Him, and you will have eternal life. That is the good news for you tonight. Would you join me in praying? Father, it is good to pray to you and to acknowledge the reality of our condition. I confess to you, Lord, that often our hearts seek for things that cannot bring relief Maybe the best we can do, we feel, is distraction. Maybe it's watching a lot of movies. Maybe it's going to social media. Maybe it's buying ourselves things we don't really need. Maybe it's going on long vacations. Maybe it's associating ourselves with people who are powerful and we receive some residual effect of their power. Maybe it's pretending as though we are not as bad as we really are. Lord, whatever way we try to avoid who we really are before your face. Lord, this is the moment in which we say honestly to you, we are sinners who have rebelled against you as creator. We have not obeyed you perfectly, and we have no hope except in the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. Lord, may the freedom that Jesus came to bring be ours tonight. The relief from the punishment, the shame, and the guilt that we so often feel. Lord, give us richly and freely the grace that comes in your son that we would not be weighed down with what we could never repay but instead we would enjoy embrace your son and live in freedom father make that true for each one of us we pray in jesus name amen would you stand and join me in singing
after we're finished here, you're all invited as the announcement was made in the beginning to the picnic. Um, even if you didn't bring food, that's fine. You just go out this door and then make a left, follow it along. If you look at all the beautiful green space, that's where it's going to happen. So we would enjoy it. I would enjoy it if you would come and eat too many hot dogs tonight. Receive this blessing from the Lord. It's a passage that I referenced this morning in my sermon, or rather, not in my sermon, but in the prayer. The blessing is, know my beloved, that in Jesus Christ you are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and you can know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Go in his peace. Amen.